we come now to the scripture, let me ask you, please, to pray with me, Father in heaven. It's amazing to us that you have spoken to us, given to us a book, written it down for us that we can have in our possessions and we can read it and meditate upon it and think on it. And I pray we would never, ever take it for granted. But Father, it would be the granite, the rock upon which we live. And so Father, I pray that you would help us now uh, give us minds uh, that can understand, give us hearts that embrace and believe cause our lives to live as if we have read this passage and we believe it. May our lives reflect the truth that is here. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to Malachi in chapter 1. Malachi, the last uh, book in the, as we have it in, the, in our Old Testament. Malachi, prophet Malachi. To read verses 1 through 5. Hear the word of God. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, How have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob. But Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Now, as Malachi wrote, ancient Israel, the nation, ancient Israel was in spiritual decline. Now, in one way, that doesn't surprise us. If you know the history of the Old Testament, if you know the history of ancient Israel, you know they spent a great deal of their history, more than than they should have, in spiritual decline. But at this point in time, we would expect a bit more of them because, you see, this is the time of restoration. If you think through the history of Israel, go back to Abraham. God calls this man Abraham. He changes his name to Abraham. To Abraham, we go back to him, and God made great promises to him. He said to Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. He said to Abraham that those who bless you will be blessed and those who curse you will be cursed. He said to Abraham that... Uh, your descendants will be numerous. You won't be able to count them. There'll be as many as the stars in the sky and the sand and the seashore. And he says, through you, through your seed, one of your descendants, through your seed, all the families, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Wow. That man. And then we know that that, that God formed the nation. It, it took a while. They were enslaved in Egypt for some centuries. And then God delivered them graciously, miraculously from that enslavement. Took them to a mountain, Sinai. Gave them a law. Made them his people. And he said that he would dwell among them. And in this covenant, in this agreement, in God's way of dealing with his people. He said that I will be your God. You'll be my people. I will bless you. And so you're to 
worship me. You're to joyfully obey me. And, and who wouldn't? I mean, he's the one who delivered them from Egypt. He's the one who's God of all that is. He said, I will protect you. I'll provide for you. But be loyal to me. Be faithful to me. But they weren't. God still, though, gave them land. And yet even in the land, they weren't faithful. God still did prosper them, especially through the reign of King David. And then Solomon came along and God gave them a temple. And and that would be the very place, the, the dwelling place of God amongst his people. And they could go to that temple and they could stop and gaze. And they could know that God was God and he was their God and he dwelt among them. And they knew that they could be in relationship with him in his, in his presence. But still they were unfaithful. And so over the course of time, throughout the history of the nation, God brought the curses of this covenant upon them because they were unfaithful rather than the blessings which would have been theirs had they been faithful. And and the curses of that covenant meant that Jerusalem ultimately would be destroyed, the temple would be destroyed, and the people would be exiled. But God was faithful. He made a promise to Abraham, and he said, out of your seed, all the families of the world will be blessed. And so he, he needed this nation. He was going to keep them together. He had made that promise. And so there was always a remnant, even among the exiles, that belonged to God, if you will. And so a day came when he brought them back, when he brought them back to the nation. He did it miraculously through a pagan king, Cyrus, who gave the decree that they could return. They returned to Jerusalem. They rebuilt the temple. Uh, Ezra, the priest, comes back to reinstitute the worship of God. Nehemiah comes back to govern them and to rebuild the walls. And, And the town and the city, the people of Israel have a revival, if you will. And yet, after a while, things got mundane. Uh, who knows? It's, it appears as if uh, things didn't happen the way they had thought they would happen, and thus their worship of God became lame, both literally and figuratively. It, it was lame in that it wasn't acceptable. It was lame in the sense that the sacrifices they brought, the animals that they brought uh, to the Lord for sacrifice were lame as well. And God says to them, you wouldn't even give this to the governor, the pagan governor. You wouldn't even pay your taxes with this. Would you bring it to me? And the priests were corrupt insincere in their representation of the people before God. They did not pay their tithes so that the work of the ministry could not continue and the poor were not helped. Their families were coming undone. Men were divorcing their wives for no reasons and then marrying foreign women to become their wives. In fact, it's summed up in Malachi chapter 3, really the whole attitude of the people. Verse 13, uh, the Lord says, Your words have been hard against me, but you say, How have we spoken against you? You have said, It is vain to serve God. Or we could write it, It is vain to worship God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. In other words, if people are saying, it's just vanity to worship God. It doesn't do anything for us at all. There's no benefit to us uh, at all. There's, there's, there's no profit in, in, in obeying him. And we end up, because our lives are, you know, we're still under the Persian rule and still discouraged. Uh, we walk in mourning before the Lord. That doesn't help us. We try to repent. That doesn't help us. Uh, 
the, the arrogant or we now think are blessed. Those ones who rebel utterly against God, they seem to be doing fine. And so why in the world would he ever want to worship God? That's the condition that Malachi finds uh, this people. So he comes, it says, with an oracle. You could also translate that with a burden. Some of you have a translation that call this the burden of the Lord. And that's this prophetic burden. He feels it. He feels the weight of it. He feels the weight of the sin of the people against God. And so now he comes to deliver this burden, if you will. He must speak it to them. It's in him. And this burden is both a warning and a wooing. It's a warning because their, their hearts are cold towards God. And, and so he's going to tell them and going to warn them about that, that you mustn't worship God insincerely. You mustn't worship God as you, as you are because that's disgraceful to him. He'll reject it. But, but he also a wooing of them saying, return, repent, return, repent, come. God will fulfill all of his promises. And so we see this in this prophet Malachi, this word that means uh, my messenger. And, and he begins by laying out for them, just in the very beginning of this, the ground of or the why of their worship. If they would say, why should we worship you? God comes to them in the very beginning, the very opening line of this, the first thing he says to them, he says, I've loved you. When he says that, he means, yes, I've loved you in the past, but also I continue to love you and I will love you. That's the essence of it. I have loved you. That's the very nature of our relationship. That expression is what we Presbyterians call a covenantal expression. You say it's covenantal because when God uh, enters into relationship with his people, he begins always by telling the people who he is and the history that he has with them. For instance, on Mount Sinai, when God gives the law through Moses, he begins that covenant like this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, what that is saying is this is who I am. I'm God. I'm the Lord. I'm the sovereign one over all creation. And I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. That's our relationship. In other words, I'm God and I've loved you because I've brought you out of Egypt. And so he establishes his relationship like that. First line, I've loved you. And then in the Exodus passage, that is the passage that's related to, to, to Moses and Mount Sinai. He says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Have no other gods before me. In other words, he said, this is our relationship. I've rescued you. I've loved you. Now, here, worship me. And, and you see, the response to that would, would be, of course. Why wouldn't you worship the God of the universe who's paid special attention to you, so much so that when you were in slavery, slavery, he miraculously delivered you and now promises you a land that is great. Uh, why wouldn't you say, of course, of course I'll worship. You're worthy of my worship because you have so loved us. It begins with this people. At this point in history, and he says to them, I have loved you. But notice their response. But you say, how have you loved us? 
Now, that just isn't a casual question. We'll find that as we read through the book of Malachi, this prophecy, that that's kind of the exchange always between God and the people. He raises some truth, and they question him. And the questioning of him isn't to get information. The questioning of them is really their act of defiance. It's very telling. There's a sense in which they're saying to God, all right, you have loved us, but what have you done for us lately? You know, we really haven't seen anything right now. And so we're really wondering, do you really love us? Come on, God, show us. You imagine if we could import to God how we might feel in that situation if we were him. By that I mean this. Husband goes to his wife and he says, I've loved you all these years. And she says, when? How? Parent goes to a child and says, I've loved you your whole life. And the kid says, when? How? That's the sense of it here. That God goes to them and says, I've loved you ever since Abraham. And they say, when? How? With that challenge, God gives them a response. We must get his intent. He said, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declared the Lord, yet I've loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. In other words, he says, you want proof of my love? I'll give it to you. And I'll give it to you in no uncertain terms. I'll give it to you in a way that you can't miss. In fact, the intent of this, and this is what we must hear, no matter how difficult the next 15 minutes are going to be, no matter how poorly I explain it. The intent of God is to warm their hearts towards him. The intent of God with this line is for them to respond and say, of of course, please forgive us for ever doubting your love for a moment. We get it. We understand. You see, God didn't give them this expression, Jacob, I've loved, Esau, I've hated, to confuse them. He didn't give it to them to send them into a theological tailspin. He didn't give it to them so that they would start two different denominations. He gave it to them to warm their hearts towards him. He gave it to them so that they would know beyond any shadow of any doubt that he really, really did love them. There's a sense in which if they don't get this, they'll never worship him. It's that crucial. Now, the other thing to think about just quickly as we enter into these deep waters is that we mustn't judge God Everything he does is right. And if he says loving Jacob and hating Esau is an expression of my love to Jacob, then it is and we must receive it. And the people of Jacob must receive it. They must receive it and not judge God. What God is saying here is that I have loved Jacob with a special, 
sovereign, electing, unconditional love. And I've not loved Esau like that. In fact, I've turned from him, I've rejected him, I've hated him. And he's saying that to the people of Jacob. This is a very, very personal message. He's not saying this to the people of Esau per se. He's saying that this is the people of Jacob, the descendants of Jacob. He's saying, this will prove to you my love for you. I have loved you with a special, sovereign, electing, unconditional love. And I've not expressed that special, sovereign, electing, unconditional love to Esau. I've hated him. Now, what does that mean? When the Bible speaks of the love of God, it speaks of it in various ways. We can speak of the love of God, which is in some sense the very general love of God for, for all people. He says that he has the sun uh, shine and the rain fall on the just and the unjust. In other words, he says, I care for my creation. I love them in that sense. That's the very love of God. In fact, he's able to say, God is, that we're to model that. He says, you're to love your enemies because I love my enemies. And so there's a certain love of God even for enemies that's there, you see. And there's this, this love of God that motivates him, that moves him towards his creation. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That very love of God that motivates and moves to send Jesus to redeem, to save. So that love of God. There's the wooing love of God that we hear in the voice of Jesus when he says, come to me all you are burdened and labor and, and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. You see, yeah, wooing love of God. But also, as obvious in the scripture, is this special, sovereign, electing, unconditional love. And that's the love of which Malachi speaks to this people. Uh, they should have known this. For instance, in Deuteronomy in, in chapter 7, we read this, God through Moses speaking <clears throat> to the people very early on in their development explains to them what's going on and why. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Holy meaning separate, set apart. You're a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Chosen. He's elected them. He's selected them there to be his. He says, The Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. In other words, it's special. He didn't do this for everybody. It's sovereign. It was his choice, unconstrained by anyone, anyone else. It was God's deal. He says, I've taken you. You're my treasured possession. I can have any nation of the world. I've taken you. And so it's, it's sovereign. It's special. It's electing. And then notice, the Lord has chosen you to, for, to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. So God's saying, listen, I had no great advantage in picking you. It wasn't like you were the best nation on the earth. And I said, I'll get them. That'll really, that you know, puts me in an advantageous position in the world. Uh, I said, no, you were the fewest, you were the smallest, you were the weakest. 
That's not why I set my love on you, verse 8. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery and the house of Jacob and the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so he's saying, basically, I've cast my love upon you because I love you. And we said, but, but why? And he says, yes. Yes, I love you. Yes, you got it. That's why. And it isn't because of their righteousness. Chapter 9, in verse 4, he says to them, Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, that is, the people in the land they're going to take. It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, or as it is because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you that he may confirm the word that the Lord spoke to your fathers and to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. In other words, he's saying it's not because of your righteousness. You are no better than they. And we say, but, 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 but why? God said, yes, <laughs> because I've loved you. It's my special, sovereign, electing, unconditional love. And see, we, we read this all throughout the scripture. For me, just me, it's just my deal. For me, the most startling chapter, really, in all the Bible, as I just read it through, is Genesis in chapter 12. Now, the reason that's a startling passage to me is that's the passage that it begins to tell us about Abraham and, his, and the covenant God makes with Abraham. And the reason it is startling is because Abraham just sort of shows up. Out of nowhere, we go, why Abraham? All these other people, why him? And you know, as we read about his life, we don't see anything in him that's all that attractive. He sins just like the rest of us. In fact, Joshua tells us in Joshua 24, when he delineates some history of, of Israel, he, he says that, that Terah, Abraham's father, was a moon worshiper. So it wasn't his righteousness. It wasn't because he came from a really healthy, worshiping God family. Uh, he just, just him. And he makes these great promises to Abraham that he will be blessed, his name will be great, that those who bless him will be blessed, those who curse him will be cursed, cursed and there'll be numerous descendants and, and all the nations of the world will be blessed through his seed. And you wonder, why him? Because of God's special, electing, sovereign, unconditional love. And then that same special, sovereign, unconditional, electing love flows out. It doesn't go to Ishmael, but to Isaac. And you go, well, that makes some sense. We know that story about Ishmael and Isaac, and Isaac was Sarah's son, and so, so that makes sense. Then God says, well, then I'll do you one better. How about Jacob and Esau? Hmm. There couldn't be two more alike people in the world than Jacob and Esau in the sense that they're the same dad and the same mom, and they were womb mates. Right? They were twins. And there they were. Now the convention would be that Esau would be the dominant one. That is that he would get the inheritance because he was the firstborn. But God says, no, no, no. I'm choosing, told this to Rebecca before, 
they were born. I'm choosing uh, Jacob. So the older will actually serve the younger. Isaac, the dad, really wanted to bless Esau. Esau was clearly his favorite. He wanted to bless Esau, but, but he couldn't and didn't. And so God says, no, 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 I'm going to go against convention that way as well. The father doesn't get the last word on this. I do. I'm taking Jacob, not Esau. And then you look at the two of them and you think, well, it must be because God will look down the corridors of time and see that Jacob would be more holy than Esau. But if you read about their lives, they were both skunks. In fact, as I read through the scripture, if it were up to me, I liked Esau a lot better than Jacob. If I had to pick one to be my friend over the other, I think I would choose Esau because at least he could hunt and get me food. <laughs> and he seemed like a cool old guy. Jacob was this little spindly deceiving guy who spent way too much time with his mother. <laughs> so it was not, in fact, when Paul takes this same account, He lays it out and he says, it was before they had done anything good or bad. In other words, it it isn't about that at all. God says, this is so that my election will stand. I'm the sovereign one. And so it comes by way of Jacob, not by way of Esau. And so he's telling the people in those days, look around you. You're the people of Jacob. You're back in your land. You've rebuilt your city. You've rebuilt your temple. Look at the Edomites, the the, the descendants of Esau. I'm telling you, and just look around. Their lives have been up and down. And whether their city's rebuilt at the moment or not, I'm telling you this, it'll never stand. Theirs will be known as a wicked country. Because I've left them on their own. They're outside of the covenant. They're outside of the blessing of Israel. But you have this. I've loved you. Don't you see? I've loved you. And I've hated them. Now we say, well, it's God unjust. That's the question the apostle raises in Romans chapter 9. And he says, no, of course God isn't unjust. He's free to have mercy upon whom he'll have mercy and compassion upon whom he'll have compassion. There's nothing unjust. There's no injustice toward Esau. God just didn't love him in the same way and he went on his own and he became this wicked country. That's the nature of his own heart. But he was merciful freely to Jacob. You see, the response of Jacob should have been stunned. He should have been stunned by this. should have looked at himself and his brother and gone, why me? You see. Should have been humbled by it. He should have been grateful for it. That's the very, that's the very point of it. You see. You see. Well, if it's that way, you see, if, if God's the one who makes this sovereign choice, then really, uh, can He hold any of us accountable? And the answer is yes, He can hold us accountable. And we ask the question, well, how can He hold us accountable then? And you know what? I don't know. That one's never made a lot of sense to me. But it's simply true that he does hold us accountable. The way Paul deals with this in Romans chapter 9, you can look at this later, he just simply says, God is the potter and we are the clay. And the pot doesn't get to ask that question. That's in the purview of God, how he does that. You see, it isn't that God's trying to keep something from us, some information from us, that if we knew it, boy, we'd be just like him. It's that if he gave us the information, we'd say... Huh? Because it's God's stuff. That's under the purview of God. And he says, I'll tell you this much. 
that the reason I have this election so I choose one and not the other is so that my mercy will be magnified. And I say, really? He says, yes. He says, so I don't take this one and I take this one so that this one will know my mercy and my mercy will be magnified. Now what does all that mean? Well, it means for the people of Jacob at this point in time, he says to them, Malachi does look around, realize that God has loved you. They weren't at that point in time saying, weren't to ask, why hasn't God loved Esau? That wasn't to be on their minds. He says, but, but I've loved you. Look at this. Consider your situation. Your city rebuilt. Your temple rebuilt. Here you are waiting for the promises of God to be fulfilled. Yes, you think it's a little slow, but I have made these promises and I will fulfill them. This is really true. I've loved you. Look at Esau. There is no hope, no future, nothing at all for them. Ask yourself the question, why is it that you're in this favorable position now? Don't you remember your sin? Don't you remember that caused the exile? Don't you remember all of that, that you should be there? You should be as desolated as as the Edomites, but you're not. I've brought you back. Don't you wonder why? Don't you wonder why you're in this situation and they're in that situation? You're in this situation because I've loved you. Have you ever wondered if God loves you? Have you ever heard that expression, you know? God loves you. I mean, we're very accustomed to that. We have little yellow stickers that have smiley faces on them that say, God loves you. And we think, why, of course, what's not to love? And we get rather upset about Sometimes we hear this expression, God hates, and we say, well, that's unbecoming of God. But the scripture speaks often of the hatred of God. You see, because God is good, there's a sense in which he must hate that which is wicked. That which is good can't be apathetic against that which is wicked. If one loves that which is wicked, one is not good. And so you see, the amazing thing about Jacob and Esau isn't that God hated Esau. It every right to. What was amazing is that God loved Jacob. That was what was amazing. He had every right to hate Jacob. Because Jacob was just as much a sinner as Esau. But he loved him. That's what's amazing. And you see, when we look at our own lives, we realize the same kind of thing. Don't you ever ask the question, why do I believe? And others don't. You look around and you realize there are others who don't believe. Why me? God's given to us this expression, this perfect expression of his love for us in Jesus. It was that night that Jesus was betrayed. He took bread after giving thanks. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body through which I will love you. Give for you. Same way he took the cup after giving thanks. Again, he gave this to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this 
in remembrance of me. Of all the things we remember, of course, we're to remember that this is the expression of, of his love. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that amazing? But don't you ever wonder, how do I know this is really for me? How do I know that he really died for me? How do I know that? How can I be sure that it was for me, not for somebody else, not just for the world, that's just in general? How do I know this is special, specific to me, personal to me, that yes, he loves me through this and my sins are forgiven? Ask yourself this. Do you know yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God without hope except in his sovereign mercy? By that I mean, Do you know that you should be with Esau? Do you know that you should be in the wicked country? Do you know that you should be in the place where jackals eat everything? Do you know that you should be in the place of destruction? Do you know that hell should be your destiny? I'm a sinner in the sight of God. And I have no hope unless he favors me with his special, sovereign, electing, unconditional love. Do you receive and depend upon the Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel as the savior of sinners? By that I mean, do you understand that Jesus is the propitiation, the atonement, the sacrifice for our sins? His goodness takes upon our sin. He dies, pays the penalty. Do you believe that? There's something within you that says, yes, that's really true. That's, that is my hope. And, and then ask yourself this. Am I grateful? D- do I get it? Am I thankful that that is true? Do I realize there is no other way? Am I willing, therefore, then to live a life consistent with that, to deny myself, to take up my cross daily, to follow him? That is to say, I realize this sin is the death of me. Thus, I'll trust in Jesus and by his spirit put it to death so that I may live. True for you. That's true for you. Then ask yourself this. Why do I believe that and other people don't? Is it because of your goodness? Is it because of your righteousness? Is it because you're smarter than they are? Is it because you had better upbringing than they did? Is it because of fill in the blank? Truth be known, I'm no different than those who do not believe. Except that for some reason, known only in God. He has loved me with his special, sovereign, electing, unconditional love. I have no other explanation for why I believe. It's at this moment in time that that he says, don't look at the Edomites, don't look at Esau's people, don't worry about them, I know what I'm doing here. This is very personal. Think about you. Do, you. do you believe? Do you realize that the only thing that can enable you to believe 
is a work of God in you. That work of God. And the only reason that work of God has come isn't because you're smarter than everybody else. Isn't because you're more humble than everybody else. Isn't because of anything in you. It's because of him. And what that is supposed to do to us is stun us. We're supposed to be stunned by that fact that this very moment in time, we all should have goosebumps going up our backs and everywhere else. Because we realize, you see, that we didn't deserve this at all. We did nothing to bring it about to ourselves. And we don't know why. We should be humbled by it. See, this removes every ground of boasting that we could ever possibly have before God. We can't say, you know, you must love me because, or you did love me because of me. He says, no, I just loved you because I loved you. And it humbles us utterly. And it should make us grateful. Because we look at what we have in him and what we deserve to have. And we know that we have what we have in him, not because we deserve it, but because he's loved us. At that point, these passages not only ring true to us, but they mean everything to us. For instance, Apostle writes in Ephesians in chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chooses us, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Paul says, I want to move the curtain back a bit and I want you to tell you why. And here's why. Because... He has chosen us in him before we could do anything good or bad, before the foundations of the world. And he's chosen us for this purpose, that we should be holy and blameless before him, to stand before him righteous. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. And we said, of course, yes, it is to the praise of his glorious grace, not to me. I have nothing to boast in. It's all of him. And so, you see, once we get this, and until we get this, we can't really worship. Because all boasting in us has to be gone. This takes it all away. And then we read his, of his love that we read about earlier responsibly from Romans in chapter 8. The apostle lays out this. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, 
for your sake were being killed all the day long, were regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Doing all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels or rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you ever doubt the love of God, he brings us first here. And he says, do you believe this? And if we say yes, then he says, how did you come to believe it? And we say, thank you. Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks. We're stunned by your love. We're stunned by the blunt expression of it. I pray that we're humbled by it. I pray that we're grateful for it, I pray that we worship you. So please now I pray that you would take this bread and this juice and set it apart in such a way that we know that we're in the very presence of our Lord Jesus, the manifestation of your love for us and to us. And that even as we come to this table, we will know that you have loved us. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you this table is not the table of grace. Evangelical Presbyterian Church, it's the table of the Lord. He invites to it all those who know themselves to be sinners in the sight of God without hope, except in his sovereign mercy. All those who receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel as the Savior of sinners. And all those who are grateful. Grateful for his special, sovereign, electing, unconditional love. That'd be true to you for you. I invite you to come. These two sections can come down this aisle to my left, these down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup. And as you do, hear the Lord say, I have loved you. Please come.